everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. I'll tell you what it was back then. Women just weren't allowed a lot of places. Weren't allowed to go to golf clubs and play golf with the guys. Weren't allowed to go into certain parts of restaurants. So women were excluded from a lot of the places that men congregated to do business. And that probably, culturally speaking, was one of the hardest things to overcome. But undaunted, I persisted. Kay Koplovitz is one of the true pioneers of the TV industry. You may not know her name, but you've seen her impact. Back in the 1970s, before ESPN or any other sports channel existed, Kay revolutionized cable TV when she created the first sports network. She was also the first woman to head any TV network, USA Network, and she did that all while fighting for her place in an industry dominated by men. I'm Kim Azzarelli, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We're bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. In this episode, I speak to the unstoppable Kay Koplovitz, one of the most influential people in entertainment. Kay has been using her vast experience to help other women entrepreneurs succeed. As co-founder and chairperson of Springboard Enterprises and Springboard Growth Capital, Kay ensures that women business owners have what they need to build their businesses. Listen and learn why Kay Koplovitz is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. So Kay, thanks so much for joining us. It's lovely to join you, Kim. Thank you so much. 
Kay, obviously your career has changed the landscape for so many things, whether it's cable television, the way we think about entertainment, women's entrepreneurship. It seems that this goes way back and that you learned the art of negotiation at a very young age, perhaps kindergarten. Is that right? Yes, it is. Actually, I was uh, five years old at the time. I was uh, in my second year of kindergarten where I, uh, my parents and I were living and uh, my dad had built a new house in the next town and it was about Christmas time. And he said, well, we're moving to our new house. And I said to my dad, well, I, I really can't move now. What do you mean you can't move now? We're moving. You're moving with us. Well, I said, I, I really can't move, Dad. It's uh, I, you know something I've got to do. And he said, well, what do you got to do? And I said, I've got to graduate from my kindergarten class. <laughs> and he looked at me like, here she goes again. And I, he said, well, well, how are you going to do that? You're moving. And I said to him, well, Dad, I, you have to raise my allowance by 50 cents a week so I can take the bus to the next town and go to kindergarten class and graduate with Mrs. Washington's kindergarten class. That's what I want to do. And he looked at me and he went, hmm, okay, but don't you ever ask your mother for a ride. We're not going to take you, no matter how cold it is. It was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, cold winters. And I said, nope, never going to ask for a ride, never going to ask for any help. Just give me my 50 cents a week and I'll take care of it. (laughs) And that's how I won my first negotiation. (laughs) Well, that was really the beginning of something extraordinary. The writing was on the wall, as they say. So from that point on, you were sort of a girl on a mission. And I'm going to bring you forward to college when you became fascinated by the potential of satellites. How did that come to be? I was uh, between my junior and senior year at the University of Wisconsin at the time, and I had been working my way through school, working lots of jobs, and I thought, I've got to get out of Wisconsin, see something about the world, and I decided to go off to Europe with my backpack and $5 a day and see what was happening and give myself a little bit of a break, and I was in London at the time. I saw this poster for a lecture being given on satellites, and I thought, wow, that could really be interesting. I think I'll go in there and listen to this lecture. And the lecturer was talking about the power of geosynchronous orbiting satellites, which had just been launched um, in the previous year. And he was talking about how powerful they were. And you only needed three of them to connect people all around the globe. And furthermore, they couldn't be jammed. We were in the time of the Cold War uh, with the Soviet Union at that point in time, and also China. Uh, and he was saying that this was a way to communicate with people around the globe. I just thought the message was so powerful. And this lecturer was Arthur C. Clarke, a renowned science fiction writer, but also a well-grounded scientist. And he was talking uh, to the class about geosynchronous orbiting satellites, which we take for granted today but just had been launched at that point in time. It just gripped me as an unbelievably powerful idea, an idea that would never let me go. And I went on to pursue the idea that went to graduate school, wrote my master's thesis on satellite technologies, and I think the potential impact it would have on the communication structure, which of course it has. And from there, you write your thesis and you get into television and you get involved in the legendary Thrilla in Manila championship boxing fight. Can you tell us why this was a pivotal moment for you? Sure. Uh, At that point, in between, I had worked at the Communications Satellite Corporation. So I really worked in, you know, bringing satellites into the communication here in the United States. And 
at that time in 19, now we're in 1975, and there are cable systems starting to grow around the country, but they really didn't have a way of connecting efficiently. So HBO is in its really early stages. It would send tapes around and they would arrive at cable systems that are damaged or torn. It wasn't a really good way of distributing a signal. And along came the opportunity with the Thriller from Manila in September 30th, 1975. HBO actually was a client of mine. They brought that to Vero Beach, Florida, uh, and I was a representative for them. And we brought that signal via geosynchronous orbiting satellites, 90,000 miles around the globe, live from Manila into Vero Beach, Florida, and showed the industry and members of Congress that satellites could be used for commercial purposes. Up to that time, they had not been used for commercial purposes in this way. And that was the night that changed the course of television history and the night that launched my career uh, to launch USA Network. So coming out of that one incredible championship boxing fight, you change the trajectory of cable television and you go on to launch the first satellite delivered basic cable network which was then called Madison Square Garden Sports Network and later became USA Network? Yes, the launch was with Madison Square Garden. It was the Madison Square Garden Sports Network. I actually brought all the professional sports to cable before ESPN. So Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NHL, uh, Augusta National Golf Tournament, the U.S. Open Tennis, the list goes on and on. Um, and so we broke open a window when sports at that time was really a weekend event. You know, the game of the week in baseball, it was uh, wide world sports on the weekend, and uh, then Monday night football. And that was it. And, and I said, why not every night? Sports are played every night. So I went after every major league sport, brought them all to cable, so broke open that window in the sports arena um, and went on afterwards renaming the network USA Network and brought in entertainment and broke open many entertainment windows for the cable industry. And there was something very unique about USA Network in that you changed the way the business model operated. How did that come into being? Television at the time was operated totally on advertising revenue. Starting up a, a nascent network, uh, there was not enough distribution to rely on. We didn't have advertising revenue to start with. Maybe 2% of the revenue came out of advertising when we started um, with pilot programs with advertisers like Bristol Myers. But it really, uh, you needed to get the distribution. So licensing was what I changed. In network television, the, the networks paid the TV stations to carry their signal. I reversed the process, and in cable, the cable operators paid the programmer to get the programming. So we had to reverse the model. Really interesting. And that really changed the course of the way we think about cable TV today. What was one of the biggest obstacles you faced in building your business? When I was building USA Network, it really was a different time, certainly in the cable industry. And being the first one out there launching a network, I really had to look for ways to get into the business. There were a lot of contracts in place, uh, access to programming that I wanted to license and so forth. And I had to really create all these special windows and a, a strategy for not only bringing all the sports, major sports to cable before ESPN was my idea. I went out and did that. Uh, but trying to get into the entertainment networks was very, very different. Trying to license popular programming from broadcast networks. There were windows that I had to really 
get into, but that really wasn't the hardest thing for me. I want to give you an example that people will understand. It happens to be at Augusta National where the Masters Golf Tournament is played. And in 1982, I was able to license the rights to carry the Masters on Thursday and Friday. I was always trying to get more sports during the week. And I worked with CBS that had the rights on the weekend. So I was there at the club uh, the very first uh, week of play. And there on Thursday, which was the traditional day for the media lunch. And we were standing outside the clubhouse chatting. uh, And I was chatting with Horde Harden, who was the chairman at the time. And there were about 14 of us, uh, and the others were all a bunch of guys from CBS and TBS from Japan. And uh, we're having a nice time, and Hort says, oh, well, let's go go to lunch. Time to go to lunch. So we go into the clubhouse, and we're going up the stairs, and Hort is leading the way. I'm walking up the stairs with him. We get to the top of the stairs, and he turns around, and he looks at me, and he said, "Uh, okay. Uh, we don't allow women on the second floor. And I said to him, well, Horde, what are we going to do about that? That's what women couldn't go to the men's luncheon room on the second floor. So what did we do? We turned around and went down to the trophy room to have lunch, where we proceeded to have lunch for the next 10 years until the second floor was opened to women. So... It just is illustrative of some of the barriers that I really had to face in building out the network. And it didn't really have so much to do with the network. It had a lot to do with the culture. And so that wasn't the only time. I mean, there were a number of times that I went to meetings in different cities around the country. The meetings were scheduled at eating clubs that were men-only eating clubs. Or I would be invited to an event to participate in an event. Uh, and I would go to the event and a golf tournament, for example, or a golf outing of some sort. And the same thing would happen. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, things have somewhat changed. Obviously, there's other barriers today, but that's a straightforward barrier. People had to change. As I illustrated with the story about Augusta, they had to change. They had to do something differently because there I was to do business with them. And what were they going to do? Lock me out of the meeting that I was there to do business? It, it, uh, that they didn't do that. They generally thought of something else, you know, that they would do or they would go someplace else or to try oftentimes to be accommodating. But you knew that when you were personally standing there, that that cultural habits persisted for a long time and that for most women, they were really frozen out. And that is a difficult thing to overcome, actually. It's a cultural issue. You must have had this incredible ability to articulate your vision, because when you're building new and bringing people along, that's always very difficult. And it seemed that many people showed up once you laid it out. I think there's one night where Bob, it clicked for him and basically said something like, tonight your dream comes true. Did I, did I get that right? You got it right. It was September 30th, 1975. The Thriller from Manila was his cable system. We were walking back to the hotel and he said, Kay, tonight your dream comes true. And, and indeed it did. Wow. And he was the one that I was working with and partnered with to launch Madison Square Garden and then became USA Network. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. 
Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. So you ran USA Network for 21 years. In the process somewhere, you launched the Sci-Fi Channel. How did that come to be? Well, I was looking for, I had really tried to launch a couple other networks. And at that point in time, early on, five years after we launched originally, the owners of the company, Bob Rosencrantz's company was in a hostile takeover bid and he wanted to get some money out. So Universal and Paramount, along with Time Inc., bought into the company. And so there were, each of them had a minority position in the USA, but they were the three of them together. And I, I really actually had a deal to buy out the Financial News Network, which became a CNBC. That was thwarted by uh, Sid Scheinberg from Universal, who, when in the moment sitting in the conference room signing the contract with Dow Jones to be my partner on uh, Financial News Network, he pulled out. Wow. It, was de- it was a devastating moment after having worked a year and a half to get it to uh, fruition. And so there there were other opportunities that I had. So when it came to sci-fi, I thought, I know sci-fi fans are loyal and they're vocal. They would be uh, good supporters of the sci-fi network coming into being. And I had negotiated the deal to buy the 
title sci-fi network from some people from Florida who had started it. And I was signing the contract to take them out because I didn't want any competition in the marketplace. And I had the contract negotiated. They were in the room reading it one last time before signing it. I got a call from Paramount who had Star Trek. You would think that they would love sci-fi network. (laughs) I got, yeah. So Stan called me and he said, you know, I don't think this is really a big enough uh, idea for a network and all this sort of thing. Well, I learned something from my first experience of having a partner pull out. I said, well, it's just too bad, Stan, because we just signed the contract. (laughs) So it's done. And actually, I didn't know for sure they were going to sign it, but I didn't care at that point in time. Uh, You know, I just, I just was not going to be thwarted again. And that's how I picked up sci-fi and, and uh, developed it. So fast forward, USA Network, after you running it for 21 years, was sold for $4.5 billion. How did that whole deal come to be? Well, there have been the uh, companies that were in the ownership of USA at that point in time kept getting bought and sold and changed. And there were a lot of different people, um, uh, different companies out there. Uh, At the end of the day, the Universal challenged a provision in the contract with Viacom uh, which had been, you know, after we had first had the, the people from Madison Square Garden and then Paramount, and so this became Viacom part, and they won a contract. So they got control of USA at that point in time, turned around. That was Edgar Bronfer Jr. People were astounded that he could win a lawsuit against Viacom at the time. Uh, and it turned around the next day and sold it to Barry Diller. So that's how it came about. Uh, there was uh, nothing I could do about that. I wanted to buy the company. It was not his choice. Uh, his choice was to sell it to Barry Diller, so he did. And that sort of ended you know, my association with USA Network, which came shortly thereafter. So that's how it goes in the world of business. And uh, I went on you know, to do many other things after that. Well, we're glad you did, even though probably at that moment, it didn't seem like the path you wanted to take. I would say for women in business, it was a great moment because at that time, after selling USA Networks, you pivoted. You were asked to chair the National Women's Business Council by President Clinton. And from there on, you have been an incredible proponent for women's entrepreneurship, founding first Springboard Enterprises. So can you tell us a little bit about Springboard Enterprises, its mission, and how does it work? At that time, it was late uh, into 1998, 1999. There was so much money pouring over the transom in venture capital. And I didn't really know that much about the venture capital market, but I saw all this capital. None of it existed uh, when I started Madison Square Garden Sports and KBUSA. So I thought to myself, where are the women? I looked around. There were no, like, couldn't find women, maybe five, um, that, you know, were in the market for venture capital. And I thought, why not? What, what's happening here? We decided we had to go find the women. We had to go out and see if they actually existed uh, so that, you know, we thought they were ready for equity investment, like venture investment. And we bid a call out. It was just a handful of us who just called out to our various networks. And we got 350 applications and we were overwhelmed. We ultimately selected 26 of those companies to go through our first accelerator boot camp. And they presented in January of, of 2000. The amazing, amazing thing is that 22 of the 26 of them got funded. Wow. And we've been doing that ever since. A lot of times people think of women's entrepreneurship. Well, first of all, we do know that women have trouble accessing capital. And that has been something that's plagued uh, women entrepreneurs. But we also know that people think about women's businesses often as small. What's your reaction to that? 
Oh, it's like fingernails on the blackboard. <laughs> I cannot stand the word small and women in the same sentence. It is that it, it is just a monkey on the backs of women that they've had to carry around for so long. And we are about women building companies to scale and sustainability. We are about going big. We are about creating wealth for women by their own you know, work and product that they're delivering into the marketplace. That's what's really important. We need women to think big because we are able to do this. I know after building a company uh, to a four and a half billion dollar uh, value that women can do this. You know, it's not impossible. But what women need and what we are providing to women is the ecosystem that is supportive. I saw that in the first year of Springboard Enterprises. It wasn't just entrepreneurs and funders, investors. It was the whole ecosystem. It was the lawyers, the accountants, the business partners, the mentors. It was everybody that you needed in the ecosystem. That's what we built at Springboard Enterprises. And that's what's so important to the entrepreneurs. So many times women have come to our accelerator program. And in the first day, they are like, oh my God, I have never been in a room with so many bright women who are willing to share their experiences for my benefit. I'm overwhelmed with this. That's the important thing. Another thing that you've done, which I find amazing, because I think you just very well dispelled the myth that women businesses are small, that next layer of capital as they move into growth and expansion capital has also been hard for women to get to. Is that why you created Springboard Growth Capital? Well, the, my two partners and I that are in Springboard Growth Capital uh, are investing in growth stage companies, generally speaking, in, 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 and it's targeted in the digital consumer space. Uh, and largely, we're looking for the growth capital level uh, of companies that are raising $20 million and up. We're targeting that so that the capital in the growth stage is there to continue to build and get to profitability and get to value or either a M&A sale to a, a strategic or an IPO. So that's where we're investing capital at growth capital to bring companies up the growth curve, which is very important. You may not know this intuitively, but when we started Springboard Enterprises, uh, only about 1% of the angel investors were women. Today, it's about 28% of the angel investors are women. So capital is around at the early stage levels, and a lot of women are investing in women-led companies. But getting up into the next stages of institutional capital and then getting up the stack, what I call up the stack later on as they are growing, it's really important to see that capital come in. That's where Springboard Growth Capital is focused. Can you give me an example of that? Sure. The first company that Springboard Growth Capital invested in was The Real Real in 2016. The Real Real is the leading company in consignment of uh, luxury goods. We did four rounds of investment in The Real Real between 2016 and 2018. It went public as an IPO in June of 2019. It's uh, an amazing story of you know, someone looking at a disaggregated marketplace, little consignment shops and neighborhoods in different cities and saying, I, I could make this a much bigger business. And that was Julie Wainwright. Julie is a, 
an alum of Springboard. So it's one of those great stories of entrepreneurs and women who see a marketplace and can act on it. And she would tell you that it was very hard to raise capital in the early days because guys who comprise uh, over 90% of the, or until recently, over 90% of the investors just didn't get it. They didn't, right. they didn't want anything to do with uh, consignment. That didn't get why it would be a very good market for them. And of course, the luxury good market is, is important. We need more women investors. We need more women on the investing side. That, that will change uh, the equation because when a woman is in the investing team at a venture capital company, that company is 70% more likely to invest behind a woman entrepreneur than a firm that has no women in its investing team. It's a really stark uh, realization that we need more women on the investing side. Makes so much sense, right? Because, you know, women have a perspective <laughs> that uh, they need mm -hmm. to share. And, and I'm a customer of the real, real. I would have totally invested in that. One thing that you had also mentioned more on the individual investor side is that we need more women investing more generally, not just in venture capital, but we need more women putting their money to work. Can you talk to us a little bit about the trend of what women control in terms of wealth and how much they invest? Well, it's such a large figure of the amount of uh, capital that women have control of today in the United States, $22 trillion. Amazing. And it comes from family wealth. It comes from maybe husband's wealth or partner's wealth and also earned wealth with women who are uh, building companies of size and scale. So it comes from different uh, sources, uh, but that is a movement that is going to increase over time because of women living longer than men, generally speaking, in the environment, which has challenges on the other end of how much women have saved, but actually building wealth, the wealth is even going to accumulate larger. So how do you access that is, is the real question. And what we need to see are, let's say, for example, family offices, which are becoming a bigger source of capital, not only for women entrepreneurs, but for men entrepreneurs as well. And particularly in companies that have the values, the same value structure, the same value focus that they have. They're not only putting their money in philanthropy, they're putting their money behind and investing in companies that meet the same value structure. We need to see more of that happening because women actually do have access and control of a tremendous amount of wealth in this country. We need to have them feel comfortable about investing decisions. So that is going to take education. And I think our entrepreneurs at Springboard are learning the value of investing in other companies that are coming behind them. That's really important. Well, Kay, we are so grateful for everything you are doing, have done and continue to do for the overall communications business. But clearly for women entrepreneurs, you're unleashing a whole nother generation of great companies. And we look forward to seeing what Springboard Enterprises continues to do. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to join you today. Thanks so much, Kim. There's so much we can learn from Kay Koplovitz. Kay reminds us that it was only a few decades ago that women could be barred from dining areas and clubs and locked out of places where business connections happen. Kay challenges us to ask why not and to think big. In the early days of TV, sports games were shown on weekends and maybe one night a week. But Kay asked why not every night and the rest is TV history. Kay also shows us what it means to pay it forward. 
Rather than resting on her groundbreaking history, she used her expertise to create an entire ecosystem that ensures other women entrepreneurs can make their vision a reality. Tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday and Thursday to hear our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. For more great listens from Seneca Women, check out our other podcasts. Every weekday, join us for a brief take on all the good that's happening in the world on Seneca's Hear Something Good. And every Thursday, listen to inspiring and shared learnings from legendary women entrepreneurs on Made by Women. If you want to support organizations making a difference for women and girls, you can donate to the Women's Economic Future Fund. Learn more on our website at SenecaWomen.com. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.